2018, 2003. I remember it clearly, and I wager some of you do as well. So sometime during the afternoon, a large portion of the northeastern United States suffered the largest blackout, the largest power outage in this nation's history. So, uh, beginning shortly after four in the afternoon, a chain of outages occurred that left over 50 million people without power. Uh, 21 power plants were shut down in just three minutes, and and what was a busy workday kind of like skidded to a halt. And one of the most iconic symbols from that day, and one I remember seeing on the front of the newspaper, uh, was the darkened skyline of New York City. So one of the focal points of the entire world kind of slowed to a standstill, unable to function, permanent gridlock until this power would come back on. The businessmen had to use long flights of stairs to exit their office buildings, not the elevators. Uh, Some riding the subway were stuck below ground in tunnels and had to actually walk along the tracks to stations to get out. Broadway canceled all its shows. Bars and restaurants reduced prices on food before it all went bad in the August heat. KFC gave away a free scoop of ice cream to everyone who would come. Uh, The Mets and Giants postponed their game at Shea Stadium. Uh, ATMs were shut down so folks couldn't withdraw cash. Some people just started to party because what else were you going to do? And as nightfall came and much of that power remained out, uh, New York City's skyline was kind of plunged into darkness. Uh, The New York Daily News reported the following day that stars could be seen for the first time in recent memory. And, And the image I remember the most clearly is just those images of the skyline once the sun had set. So a skyline just kind of shrouded in darkness. It was eerie. It was incredible. Uh, one TV correspondent that night uh, was at Times Square, and she said on TV, she said, they called Times Square the crossroads of the world, and tonight is the crossroads of darkness. The reason I bring up this story this morning is because I think it kind of reminds us of... Uh, kind of that tangible way uh, darkness feels. Uh, Even if we were not in New York that day, we saw the news. We saw a whole city plunged into darkness. In our day-to-day lives, we're comfortable with darkness sometimes, right? We sleep in darkness, usually. Uh, We drive at night. But usually we can always kind of turn on the lights, right, if we want to. So we can mitigate the darkness by taking advantage of electricity, by bringing in light, But that one night in New York City 13 years ago, that wasn't an option. Those images are forever imprinted on my memory. Well, in the passage of God's Word that we're at this morning, we see the Apostle Paul talking about darkness and light. Only the darkness and light he talks about is a much bigger thing. It's much more serious than anything uh, a power plant or an electric company can work with. Paul gets to our very identity and the core of who we are. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Ephesians. It's in the New Testament. Uh, If you're not familiar with the Bible, that's fine. Uh, Just start flipping towards the back section of it and keep an eye for big books like Acts and Romans and Corinthians and just go a little bit farther and you'll get there. Right past Corinthians. Ephesians uh, was a letter written to a group of churches by a man named Paul. Uh, Paul was a missionary in the early days of the Christian church. And in this letter, he's writing with kind of two main purposes. 
first, to explain what it means to be a Christian, and then second, what it looks like to live as a Christian. And that's really what we've been saying all along. This is the way this letter is divided up, right? So chapters 1 through 3, which we've taken the time to look at in depth over the past few months, is kind of structured and helps us understand what it means to be a Christian. And then chapters 4 through 6, the second half of the book, help us to understand what it looks like to live as one. And we've been contemplating the second kind of purpose of Paul's, how to live as a Christian, for a few weeks now. We've seen that in light of who we are in Christ, in light of the Christian life that we have through the Holy Spirit's power, this new spiritual life we have, uh, we're to live in a way that's completely new. We are now to work to build up the church, the family of God. We saw that at the beginning of chapter 4. And and we're now to live with one another in love and forgiveness as those who have been made alive in Christ. That was the second half of chapter 4. Paul, remember last week, if you were here, used the imagery of, of clothing. If you uh, remember, to kind of show how we respond to God's work in us by taking off the old clothing, the old manner of life, and then putting on the new clothing of life in Christ. Uh, Clothing and and a self that's being renewed constantly by the Holy Spirit. Kind of learning how to live as members of the family of God. And today we see Paul switch his illustration from clothing to light. Darkness and light. As he explains who we were once as darkness, uh, but now in Christ as light. So, let's read this passage together. We're going to read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 to 21. Ephesians 5, 1 to 21. Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another 
out of reverence for Christ. Last week at the end of chapter 4, we saw Paul urging us to be forgiving of one another. And then rooting the motivation for that kind of attitude of forgiveness in the truth of the gospel. Saying that God, through the death of his son, has forgiven us. And so now we can forgive one another. And here at the beginning of chapter 5, Paul continues this stream of thought. Uh, He commands the churches he's writing to. He commands us to be imitators of God, there in verse 1. As beloved children. And to walk in love as Christ loved us. So Paul, again, kind of reminds us of the great mercy of the gospel. And now encourages us, those who were enemies of God, to now be imitators of God. To grow in holiness as God is holy. Uh, This brings to mind what we saw last week. Look there in uh, verse... see if I can find it. Verse 24 of chapter 4. We're to put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God. Now we're to imitate God. We're to become more like Him. We're to mimic Him like a son and mimics his father. Uh, Many of us remember trying to be like our dads growing up, right? Uh, When he went to work, we're like, why can't we go too? Right? What he wanted to do, we wanted to do for the most part. That inclination in our hearts can help us understand the point Paul is making here. As those who have been joined to Christ by faith, we now have God as our Father. We have the church as our family, our brothers and sisters. And this whole new spiritual family we're part of, and we've been adopted into, uh, as a part of that, we start displaying the character of our Father. We start to look like Him. We start to bear the family resemblance. You know, sometimes when you know somebody well and you see their sibling, or you see their son, you're like, I know who you belong to. In the same way, as we grow in our Christian life, we become more like our God, our Father. Verse 2, Paul says, walk in love. How? Why? As Christ loved us and gave up himself for us. And Paul is just reminding us of the gospel. The only reason we're acceptable to God, the only way we have him as our Father, is because he first loved us. Because he gave his Son to bear the punishment we deserve to save us. Jesus loved us so much that he gave himself up for us. He died so that we might live. He experienced darkness so that we might come into his light. And now we can live sacrificial lives of love out of the life we've been given in Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. So what then does that new life look like? And we asked that last week too, right? That's what Paul's asking in verses in chapters 4 through 6. And we started looking at that more in depth in chapter 4 a couple weeks ago. And then in chapter 4 again last week. And, and now we come to this week. And let's consider what Paul says. And see what we might learn about this new identity that we have. This new way of life. So this morning, let's, let's look at this passage in two parts. Uh, first, verses 3 through 6, spiritual darkness. Spiritual darkness. And then verses 7 to 21, spiritual light. Spiritual light. Alright, verse 3, spiritual darkness. Paul writes, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Paul doesn't hold any punches here. 
Uh, he describes this way of life that he'll uh, call darkness later in verse 8. And he's writing to the church. He's saying, do not participate in, in those deeds of darkness. The first deed he mentioned there is sexual immorality. The Greek word is porneia. And along with the next word, impurity, Paul seems to be including all types of sexual immorality or, or sexual activity outside the relationship of marriage between a man and a woman. And then he links in covetousness, a desire to have what is not our own. And I think that makes sense, right? I mean, much of the root of sexual immorality is wanting others for ourselves and not being content with God's provision for us. And I think we should pause here and just be clear on this topic. Because over the years, I think the many uh, a well-meaning Christian church has done a, a poor job teaching on this. Uh, so just so we're clear, Paul is not telling Christians to think of, of sexual activity as something dirty or something to be ashamed of. It's not by nature unholy or, or fleshly or, or worldly. Uh, the truth is that God has given this gift to his creation as something good and precious. Something that even reflects his love and his glory. It is a gift. It's a seal uh, of a commitment that one man and one woman make together in marriage. Giving themselves to one another. A marriage is a covenant made by one man and one woman before God. And it reflects God's love for us. It shows us what that love looks like. See, God has always loved us. He's always loved his people with, with love that is particular and permanent and exclusive. And, and so as we love our spouses with this particular, exclusive, permanent love, as we vow to do that until death do us part, we are reflecting God's committed, eternal love for us. I don't want to steal too much thunder for next week. Uh, that's what we'll talk about. Uh, that's what Paul talks about in our passage next week. But, but suffice it to say, marriage is a picture of the gospel. It's a display of God's love. And so in that context, sexual immorality is not just something that God has said is sinful because he's God and he can just make those decisions, right? It's not because he's prudish. It's not because he's rigid. It's not because he's anti-pleasure. That's because God has designed sex to be holy and joyful, something sanctified in marriage. And so it's actually contrary to the gospel to place that act outside the covenant relationship of marriage. It's just out of place. It takes the seal of a relationship and takes it into a place where there's no real relationship at all. It lies about who God is. It lies about how he's loved us in Christ. So Paul says there at the end of verse 3 that sexual immorality must not be even be named among us. Verse 4, Paul goes beyond sexual immorality and he starts talking about how we speak. Uh, he says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So Paul says that talking about uh, sexual immorality and, and other things beyond that in, in filthy, foolish, crude ways ought not to characterize who we are now in Christ. It's out of place, he says there in verse 4. It's not who we are. Not only have our hearts been made new, but our mouths are being made new. 
Remember last week when we considered Paul's words at the end of chapter 3, verse 29. He said, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. So how we talk should be changing as we grow to be more like Christ. And a brief aside here that I also think is important. I think it's important for us to remember as as those who follow Christ, as we seek to guard our mouths from these things, and as we seek to guard our hearts and our minds from sexual immorality, and instead imitate our Father and walk in love, that's not an excuse to sequester ourselves away from everyone who actually does those things. Uh, It doesn't give us an excuse to look down on unbelievers, those who do not claim to be Christians, uh, and those who behave in these manners. Even though Paul says this kind of filthy talk is out of place for the church, uh, we're reminded here that it's very definitely much in place for the world. The world in its sin and rebellion against God sets itself up against him and his holiness. And so while we're not the partner in this talk, in this immorality, we're to look in love and compassion on those who commit it. Uh, to look past what they say and look to the condition of their hearts. Remember what Jesus told his disciples. Uh, It is the heart that overflows into our words. Our words reveal our hearts. So that should make us humble. Both as we see our words and the way that our anger and bitterness show up in the way we talk. And also just to be compassionate. Seeking to show the light of Christ to those around us. Let me give you an example of how this can be done badly. I remember a young, immature kid who understood himself to be a Christian. Me. I was playing basketball with friends. I was probably 12 one day at a local pool. And I just remember this clearly in my memory. A neighborhood boy was playing with us and uh, he was just cursing up and down. And I remember, to my shame, uh, just kind of thinking of myself as better than him and just saying, hey, um... Can you stop talking like that? And you can imagine his response, right? It was kind of like, not only will I talk like that, but I'll continue to talk like that more, with more volume and more frequency than I did before. I think that showed what was in my heart at the time. I was more concerned with this kid's words than with his heart. I wanted to reform what he said, and I didn't care as much about what he needed. I didn't want to become his friend. I I wanted to remain his kind of distant judge. I had a critical spirit that day. I did not glorify God. I expected light out of darkness. Jesus didn't expect that. Jesus came to the darkness to bring the light of life. Church, learn from my mistake. Don't be proud of your holiness. It doesn't make any sense. It's not yours to begin with. It's given to you. It's something you grow in. Let's not be ivory tower Christians uh, who demand kind of external compliance with biblical standards from those around us and yet kind of shrink from telling them about how the new life of Christ can actually motivate a change in living. Let's not just look for symptoms and and kind of ignore the source. Let's be compassionate. Like God has been so compassionate with us. Aren't we glad God didn't treat us that way? Look for external compliance without heart change. Paul says we are to avoid talking in filthy ways, but he doesn't mean to avoid people who talk in filthy ways. How are we to talk instead? End of verse 4. We are to be thankful. 
British author and pastor from the last century, John Stott, puts it this way. Kind of summarizing up these verses. All God's gifts, including sex, are subjects for thanksgiving rather than for joking. The joke about them is bound to degrade them. To thank God for them is the way to preserve their worth as the blessings of a loving creator. Christian brother and sister, how much we have to be thankful for too. I got a text this morning from Charles Biggs over at Catoctin Church, Presbyterian Church. He texted me on Sunday mornings to encourage me. And he just said, write down ten things you hope for today in Christ. I needed that this morning. We have so much to be thankful for. We can just write it down and remember it. Well, there in verse 5, Paul says, That it is indeed true that everyone who practices sexual immorality, impurity, and so on will have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. So Paul is saying that for those who are persistent in rebellion against God, persistent in commitment to sin, they have no hope of life in God's kingdom. Stern warning. If we continue to persist in sin, we will have no inheritance in Christ. I think it's important before we discount that uh, for us to remember here that this is not just a, a true warning to those who are outside the church. Uh, Paul, is here, it, Paul here is writing to the church. He's writing to those who think they're inside it. And he's saying living the new life in Christ requires purpose and commitment and discipline. And those who have been truly made alive in Christ, things like sexual immorality must become less true of us as we grow. Our hearts have been changed, and so the way we live will begin to change as well. And so if we see these things not taking place in our lives, if we don't see growth, if we don't see kind of heart change and our affections for Jesus growing, if temptations to sin continue to kind of win over us and we do not seek repentance and change, we should evaluate whether or not we're truly joined to Christ by faith. I get it. Sin is real. Uh, Temptation is strong. But you know what's also real is the conversion that we looked at last week. Putting off the old and putting on the new. It will be a slow process for many. But we must see signs of spiritual growth in our lives. That's one of the reasons God has given us a church. So that we can look for those signs of growth in one another when we don't even recognize it especially for the more discouraged among us, saying, no, I see you growing, though you might not. So Loudon Valley Baptist Church, as we walk in new life, it's going to take work. One author says, holiness is not a condition into which we drift. So if you consider yourself a Christian here today, take stock of your life. Paul is calling you to live out who you are in Christ. Your new identity in Him. If you want to read more about that, read Ephesians up to this point. Do you see growth in this identity that you have? Paul is especially concerned here in matters of sexual sin. That's an area that's so pervasive in our churches today. So brothers and sisters, how are you doing in that area? What are you watching on your phones and your computers? What do you meditate on? Are you taking steps to beat back that sin? Don't play around with it. It doesn't play nicely. It will lure you in with promises of pleasure and joy, and then it will destroy you. Only Jesus gives lasting delight. 
And in case you might be tempted to kind of shrug off this warning, Paul presses it home in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. I imagine those empty words as kind of false comforts, right? So in the face of God's holiness, just kind of, it's, all, it's okay. So maybe words like, God's merciful. He'll accept you regardless of how you choose to live. Or, God isn't judgmental. If it feels right, it's probably good for you. Or, you know, as long as I keep this private, it won't hurt anyone. Or, God just wants us to love one another. He, he doesn't care as much about the way we live. Friends, do not be deceived, Paul says. Sin is serious because sin is against the very king of the universe. Every sin is pointed at God himself as a kind of direct act of, re- act of rebellion against his rule in our lives. And so Paul warns us that this sin will deserve God's wrath. God is a good and holy judge. He's righteously angry at sin. And I think we want God to be this way, right? As we look at the news day to day and we see the injustices of the world that are being committed in our county, in our state, in our nation, in our world, we want some accountability for these things. We want a higher judge. When it comes to our hearts, we're less thrilled about that. Friends, let's remember, each one of us has unjustly sinned against this judge. We've abused his good creation. He made us to bring him praise. as something that we're promised will bring us great joy. But we have denied him that praise. We have decided to worship what he has created. Money, sex, entertainment, a comfortable house, well-behaved kids, successful career, rather than worship the giver of those gifts. Each one of us deserves God's wrathful judgment for this. There's no way around it. But friends, the good news is that God has also loved us so much that he's provided a way for us to avoid his wrath. Not by just kind of saying it's okay, but by pouring out his wrath on someone else. To send his son, Jesus Christ, to live as a man, to die in our place. Now Paul here talks about wrath. And throughout the Bible... Uh, we see the authors of Scripture use a really helpful picture for wrath. It's a cup of wine. And for those who deserve God's wrath, they're pictured as needing to drink that down to the bottom. Kind of go bottoms up on judgment. Bear God's wrath in full for sin. But when Jesus came, he drank that cup for us. That's the good news of the gospel. You may remember the account of Jesus when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, hours before he was killed. He said, Father, all things are possible for you. He's praying to God, his Father. Then what does he say? Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. It was the cup of God's wrath, and Jesus had tasted it and had thrown him to the ground. And so he's saying, Father, if need be, I will drink it. But if there's another way, Jesus hung on the cross for there was no other way and he drank that cup down to the last drop and he picked it up and he turned it over and it was empty he bore the penalty of our sin on himself God poured out all his wrath on his son Jesus died for anyone who repent of sin and turn to him trust in him we will have our sins washed away and then he rose again To show that he had power over sin. 
And so if we will repent and turn to Him, we will have new life. We will be made perfectly pleasing to God. If you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, would, would you repent and turn to this Jesus? He is such a kind Savior to drink God's wrath in your place. So see your sin, repent of it, turn to God, look to Christ and the death He died for you. Repent, believe, and you will be saved. If you have questions about that, I'd encourage you not to leave them unanswered. This is the most serious thing you can talk about this afternoon. So talk to me afterwards, talk to someone sitting around you. Let us hear your story and share with you how God can save you through Christ. Alright, well we've seen how Paul describes some of the characteristics of spiritual darkness. Now let's keep going and spend the rest of our time in what Paul calls spiritual light. Look there in verse 7. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So apart from Christ, Paul says we walked in spiritual darkness. We were unable to see the truth or know the truth. We were enamored with the lies of sin. We believed kind of the false promises of our darkness. Uh, But then, just like he's been saying all along, a transformation took place. And we were taken out of spiritual darkness and brought into spiritual light. This was the act of recreation, uh, worked by the Spirit in our lives through the good news of the Gospel. If you, if you think back to the very first chapter of the Bible, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you're probably familiar with these words. Before the world was created, uh, the writer of Genesis says that darkness was over the face of the deep. But then what happened? God said, let there be light, and there was light, and the world was then created. And now in the same way as he created all things, God is recreating a spiritual people for his glory. So into our spiritual darkness, by his spirit, God speaks, let there be light. And in an instant, our hearts are changed. We who hated God now grow in love for him. We who rejoiced in sin now seek to turn away from it. Here's how Paul put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God has done a work in our hearts. Look there in verse 8. You notice how Paul says that not only were we in dark, or walking in darkness, he says that we were darkness. That was our identity. That was who we were. There was no inkling of good in us apart from Christ. But then just like the lights coming on in New York City, uh, the Holy Spirit opened our eyes and shone the light of Christ into our hearts, giving us new life. This is the amazing miracle conversion that we looked at in last week. The image here that Paul gives us is just wonderfully vivid. We were darkness. We are now light because we have been united to him who is the light, to Jesus Christ. We no longer live for ourselves in that old pattern of life. We live for our king. 
So Paul says, live that out. Live that way. Live like that's true. Walk as children of light. Bear fruit in your life of things that are good and right and true. Verse 9. Discern what pleases God and rejoice that you can now walk in those pleasing ways. Verse 10. Don't partner with darkness. Expose it for what it is. Verses 11 and 13. Let your light shine in such a way that glorifies God so that others might be brought to Him. That's what Paul's getting at there in verse 14, most likely. And then he concludes verse 14 with what was probably a part of a hymn in the early church. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Jesus came to those who were asleep, dead, and dark. And he brought wakefulness through his spirit. He brought life and he brought light when he shined on us. So I wonder, Christian, does this imagery of living in the light sound like the way you live? Does it ring a bell for you? Does it sound like the freedom and joy you've experienced walking in Christ? I, I think the gospel, the news that we have been transferred from spiritual darkness to spiritual light is something that we can easily kind of assent to and say we believe in. But one great litmus test to show if it's actually impacting the way we live is how ready we are to confess our sin. I hope that our time at the beginning of this sermon talking about sexual immorality and impurity convicted us. Because as those who walk in the light, we've been made new. But the more we grow in Christ, the more starkly we're going to see our sin. It's one of the great apparent dichotomies of the Christian life. We're going to grow in holiness. But as we grow in holiness, we just see how sinful we are. So... Allow the gospel to humble you this morning. I don't want us to leave after thinking about darkness of light and be like, I'm light. Gone with the darkness. Be humbled by this. The gospel is something you need every day, every hour. It's not just for when you were first brought to Christ. It's for the rest of your lives. So as our culture becomes more and more accepting of patterns of life and, and sexuality that are opposed to God, we must remain clear, we must remain firm in our convictions, but we should never use our convictions as a way to kind of look down on or disassociate with darkness. We were darkness. Why are we light? Only because God had mercy. So how can we not have mercy on those around us? Our sin has been exposed for what it is. We've been given the gift of repentance and faith. Now we walk in the light, all of God's grace. So I think we should see clearly here that part of the way we will now walk in the light is by confessing our sins to one another. I mean, think about it. It's gospel logic. If all the ugly sins you have committed, those you long to keep hidden those you might still cherish in private, the kind of the deepest, darkest closets and corners of your heart that you've locked up so that no one can see. If the gospel is true, then all those things that deserve God's wrath and the condemnation and shame that other people will put on you, that's not yours to bear anymore. If the gospel is true, then all God's wrath on that sin has been poured onto Jesus. He has borne it all and has risen victorious. So, Gospel life, walking in the light, means gospel freedom. 
means we now can drag all that stuff out into the light. Let the merciful, purifying light of Christ kind of burn it away. Walk in the light, Christian. Don't bear the burden of secret sins anymore. Jesus took those for you. King David in Psalm 32 kind of bore his heart in this matter. I think we can, we can uh, understand this and see it in our own hearts, this struggle. He says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Christian, you have forgiveness in Christ. So now you can freely acknowledge your sin, confess it, and find joy. And let me just say that if your struggle is particularly in the area of sexual sin, like we've considered this morning, confessing that uh, is kind of the first step to destroying its hold on you. Don't be silent. Find other Christians in the church and be real with them. What do you have to lose except kind of a false persona that you're better than you really are? Jesus on the cross has already shown that that's true. And remember, or that's not true. And remember, church, this also works the other way around. So as we seek to build one another up as the body of Christ, as Paul's been talking about, uh, and we hear uh, our brothers and sisters confess to sin, what we know about the gospel and what we know about our own hearts will make us compassionate to them. We must not be somehow shocked by the sins of our brothers and sisters. Surprised, yes. Saddened and grieved, for sure. But not shocked. As if being a Christian means they will suddenly have a perfect grasp on holiness. We know the condition of our own hearts. We know how dark our sin remains. So let's humbly care for one another and extend grace. So, church, are you at home in the daylight this morning? Are you living freely in this new life Jesus has purchased for you? Are you being vulnerable and exposing your life to others who you trust? Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so you won't have to. So embrace this new light, this new life. Briefly, before we conclude, let's move on then just look at the last seven verses there. You can never kind of fully look at all these passages that are 22 verses long, but Paul kind of gets practical and he starts talking about how we live in Christ and he urges us uh, to be careful how we walk, to walk wisely, making the best use of time because the days are evil, to, to be, not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is. So part of this walking in newness of life will mean being, uh, will mean being shrewd with the way we spend our time. Right, this is another thing we can help one another with in the church. And we can, part of our accountability relationships with one another, how are you spending your time? Are you tempted to squander it in entertainment or slothfulness? Or are you making the best use of what you've got? Are you being careful with your schedule? I was at a pastor's event this past Tuesday in D.C. And and the question came up, how do young pastors waste their time? At that point, I put down my Facebook feed and started paying attention. (laughs) And there were the typical answers, social media, sports... Yeah, yeah, good things, but they waste your time sometimes. 
But one of these answers stuck with me. A way we might waste our time as Christians is by engaging in prayerless labor, said one of these ministers. Prayerless labor. Working as hard as we can, trying to be the best we can, trying to be role model Christians, all without prayer. What use is that? All without seeking the Lord. I wonder if that's you this morning. I wonder if it's me. I wonder if we need to slow down the labor a bit so we can pray to the God who's sovereign over the labor. Another mark of living the new life is not getting drunk, debauchery, verse 18, but instead being filled with the Spirit. Paul has talked about the Spirit throughout his letters. So far we've seen that uh, the Spirit seals us for an inheritance, chapter 1. He gives us understanding of the things of God, chapter 1. He is God's presence with us, chapters 2 and 3. And he brings unity and peace to the church, chapter 3, chapter 4. And so as we grow to be more like Christ, we're going to be continually more renewed and filled with the Spirit. And notice that verb is, is passive, right? It's a command, be filled, and yet it's a passive word, be filled. So as we are commanded to kind of allow the Spirit's work in our lives, ultimately this work is, is the Lord's. He gives us the Spirit. He gives us the power to walk in holiness. And it's interesting, Colossians, uh, after we're done with this series, or even now, you might find it interesting to read over Colossians. It's a shorter book, but it kind of traces right along with Ephesians. It's a partner letter. And what does he say, Paul say in Colossians? Instead of saying, be filled with the Spirit, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So let's remember that the work of the Spirit will never kind of be divorced from the work of the Word. If you want to be filled with the Spirit, go to God's Word. Meditate on it. Study it with other Christians. Memorize it. You'll find your love for God grow and your fight against sin become stronger. And then as we close, we look at verses 19 through 21, where we see some of the results of this work of the Spirit in us. It's, it's no surprise that these things are corporate in nature, right? If the Spirit is at work to build up the body of Christ, then the fruit of being filled with the Spirit will be things we do together as a church. So it's the Spirit unifies us in the truth of the gospel. Paul says that we will address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with our hearts. We say it a lot, but it's always good to recognize again that when we gather together to sing, we're not having kind of a personal, private, quiet time with God. We're singing with His family. We're singing sometimes to God directly, sometimes to one another. I take that hymn we sang earlier. Come behold the wondrous mystery. We're not telling God to behold it. We're telling one another to behold it. Dawning of the King. The theme of heaven's praises. Robed in frail humanity. Then we remember our plight. And our longing. And our darkness. And then we remember the news. Now the light of life has come. And then we say to one another again. Look to Christ who condescended. Took on flesh to ransom us singing together as a church builds up the body of believers. It encourages us. It's the work of the Spirit. Sometimes I just take a break when I'm singing. I just listen to you all sing the truth over me. I need you to do that for me. We need to do that for one another. One of my prayers for the church is that we'd be a church that sings loudly and exuberantly and joyfully because what we're singing is true. And finally... We'll get to this more next week. 
Paul says we're to be filled with the spirit by, spirit by giving thanks and then kind of what he gets into next week, submitting to one another. Our words ought not to be full of complaining, but rather full of thanksgiving. So church, we were once darkness. Now through the gospel, we are light in the Lord. Let's walk as children of light this week.